0: Good morning. It's good to be with you this morning. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to 2 Chronicles. We'll continue studying the kings of Judah. 2 Chronicles chapter 22. We'll pray again as it is customary and as it is necessary, as we need the Lord's help. Let's go before the Lord in prayer as we come to his word. O Father in heaven, This is your word that you have given to us. We need your help in understanding it. This is the gospel of your Son, in whom alone there is salvation, and this is a word that comes by the power of your Spirit. O Lord, three in one, one in three, help us, speak to us, teach us. In Jesus' name, amen. Second Chronicles chapter 22 and 23, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem made ah- Ahaziah, his youngest son, king in his place. For the band of men that came with the Arabians to the camp had killed all the older sons. So Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, reigned. Ahaziah was 22 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned one year in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Athaliah, the granddaughter of Omri. He also walked in the ways of the house of Ahab, for his mother was his counselor in doing wickedly. He did what was evil in the the sight of the Lord, as the house of Ahab had done. For after the death of his father, they were his counselors to his undoing. He even followed their counsel and went with Jehoram, the son of Ahab king of Israel to make war against Hazael, king of Syria at Ramath Gilead. And the Assyrians wounded Joram. And he returned to be healed in Jezreel of the wounds that he had received at Ramah when he fought against Hazael, king of Syria. And Ahaziah the son of Jehoram king of Judah went down to see Joram the son of Ahab in Jezreel because he was wounded. But it was ordained by God that the downfall of Ahaziah should come about through his going to visit Joram. For when he came there, he went out with Jehoram to meet Jehu, the son of Nimshi, whom the Lord had anointed to destroy the house of Ahab. And when Jehu was executing judgment on the house of Ahab, he met the princes of Judah and the sons of Ahaziah's brothers who attended Ahaziah, and he killed them. He searched for Ahaziah, and he was captured while hiding in Samaria, and he was brought to Jehu and put to death. They buried him, for they said, He is the grandson of Jehoshaphat, who sought the Lord with all his heart. And the house of Ahaziah had no one able to rule the kingdom. Now when Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, she arose and destroyed all the royal family of the house of Judah. But Jehoshabeath, the daughter of the king, took Joash, the son of Ahaziah, and stole him away. "...from among the king's sons who were about to be put to death, and she put him and his nurse in a bedroom. Thus Jehoshabeath, the daughter of King Jehoram and wife of Jehoiada the priest, because she was a sister of Ahaziah, hid him from Athaliah, so that she did not put him to death. And he remained with them six years, hidden in the house of God, while Athaliah reigned over the land." But in the seventh year, Jehoiada took courage and entered into a covenant with the commanders of hundreds, Azariah the son of Jehoram, Ishmael the son of Jehohanan, Azariah the son of Obed, Maaseiah the son of Adiah, and Elishaphat the son of Zikri. And they went about through Judah and gathered the Levites from all the cities of Judah and the heads of fathers' houses of Israel, and they came to Jerusalem. And all the assembly made a covenant with the king in the house of God. And Jehoiada said to them, Behold the king's son, let him reign, as the Lord spoke concerning the sons of David. This is the thing you shall do. Of you priests and Levites who come off duty on the Sabbath, one-third shall be gatekeepers, and one-third shall be at the king's house, and one-third at the gate of the foundation. And all the people shall be in the courts of the house of the Lord. Let no one enter the house of the Lord except the priests and ministering Levites. They may enter, for they are holy, but all the people shall keep the charge of the Lord. The Levites shall surround the king, each with his weapons in his hand, and whoever enters the house shall be put to death. Be with the king when he comes in and when he goes out. The Levites and all Judah did according to all that Jehoiada the priest commanded, and they each brought his men who were to go off duty on the Sabbath with those who were to come on duty on the Sabbath. For Jehoiada the priest did not dismiss the divisions." And Jehoiada the priest gave to the captains spears and large and small shields that had been King David's, which were in the house of God. And he said, All the people as a guard for the king, every man with his weapon in his hand, from the south side of the house to the north side of the house, around the altar and the house. Then they brought out the king's son, put a crown on him, and gave him the testimony. And they proclaimed him king. And Jehoiada, said, Jehoiada and his sons anointed him, and they said, "'Long live the king!' "'When Athaliah heard the noise of the people running and praising the king, "'she went into the house of the Lord to the people. "'And when she looked, there was the king standing by his pillar at the entrance, "'and the captains and the trumpeters beside the king, "'and all the people of the land rejoicing and blowing trumpets, "'and the singers with their musical instruments leading in celebration. "'And Athaliah tore her clothes and said, "'Treason, treason!' Then Jehoiada the priest brought out the captains who were set over the army, saying to them, Bring her out between the ranks, and anyone who follows her is to be put to death with the sword. For the priest said, Do not put her to death in the house of the Lord. So they laid hands on her, and she went into the entrance of the horse gate of the king's house, and they put her to death there. And Jehoiada made a covenant between himself and all the people and the king that they should be the Lord's people. Then all the people went to the house of Baal... "'Tore it down. His altars and his images, they broke in pieces, "'and they killed Matan, the priest of Baal, before the altars. "'And Jehoiada posted watchmen for the house of the Lord "'under the direction of the Levitical priests and the Levites, "'whom David had organized to be in charge of the house of the Lord, "'to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, as it is written in the law of Moses, "'with rejoicing and with singing according to the order of David.'" He stationed the gatekeepers at the gates of the house of the Lord, so that no one should enter who was in any way unclean. He took the captains, the nobles, the governors of the people, and all the people of the land, and they brought the king down from the house of the Lord, marching through the upper gate to the king's house. And they set the king on the royal throne, so all the people of the land rejoiced. And the city was quiet after Athaliah had been put to death with the sword." The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of the Lord endures forever. Thanks be to God. In Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, no preacher is worth his salt unless he references J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. In Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, there are two thrones in the book The Two two Towers. There are two thrones that stand out in this epic story, the throne of Rohan the throne of Gondor. Rohan is a kingdom of men, men and horses, warriors, but there is a nasty character named, you know, this is perhaps a name for a child if you're looking for one, Grima Wormtongue. And Grima Wormtongue, I mean, he's, he's pasty, he looks like death, his hair is matted, and he just looks like a snake. He has cast a spell over the king of Rohan, Theoden, and so Theoden is the rightful king on his throne, but there's someone behind the throne. And then in Gondor, another kingdom nearby, there's this great large throne with these steps leading up to it, and then there's a little throne next to it. The little throne has the steward of Gondor, Denethor, who's been taking care of things, but the great throne is empty. There is no king. So you get to book three, and then book three is return of the king. These thrones stand out as there's similarities and differences, but with each situation, whether there's this spellbound king or there's an empty throne, there's still the question, who is on the throne? Who is ruling? In the case of Rohan, there's somebody behind the king who's corrupting things and ruling and manipulating. In the case of Gondor, there's a longing that the king would return, that we would not have an empty throne. It's a relevant question for our present day. The temptation is to apply this to our current political landscape, but that, I think, would be to miss the point. Uh, To paraphrase the early church father, Tertullian, what hath Jerusalem to do with Washington, or what hath Jerusalem to do with Columbia, or what hath Jerusalem to do with Anderson? There was a king who said long ago, "'My kingdom is not of this world. "'If it was, my servants would have swords.'" He also said that the kingdom is within you. So the real thrones and dominions that concern us this morning are the approximately 400 thrones that reign in our hearts here this morning. There's 400 different kings and queens here today. What hath Jerusalem to do with you? We've talked about kings and queens but we'll also talk about houses, that's how we're going to organize our text this morning. Uh, The word house is repeated a lot, so it helped me to organize things. We're going to talk about two houses, there's more than two, but we're just going to focus on two of them, the house of Ahab and the house of the Lord. So follow with me. First, the house of Ahab. What is it? Well, refresher, the house of Ahab has been a bit of a sub-theme in the past couple of chapters, that Ahab and Jehoshaphat made a marriage alliance, and they joined their two houses with Jehoram marrying Athaliah. So a daughter of Ahab and a son of Jehoshaphat, and you have the house of Ahab having influence. But what's happening here is just a continuation of the history of the king's. What had happened generations before was that Rehoboam had been the rightful grandson of David and had taken the throne of the kingdom, and he made foolish mistakes, and so he lost ten tribes. The, two, the kingdoms divided, and it had been one kingdom that we would call Israel under Saul and David, and now it becomes two kingdoms. One of them still called Israel. It's confusing. That's the northern kingdom with ten tribes. Reuben, Simeon, Gad, Asher, Dan, Naphtali, Issachar, Zebulun, Manasseh, Ephraim, all of them. Ten tribes. That's in the north. The south is Judah with two tribes. And so they're a bit outnumbered with Judah and little Benjamin. And then there's the Levites. When you actually count up the tribes, it looks like there's 13. It's a little confusing. But the Levites mostly gather with the southern kingdom, Judah. So, to keep track of things, there's Israel in the north, Judah in the south, and the sons of David rule in Judah. There's one dynasty that rules unbroken. The house of David rules over Judah. In the north, it's the complete opposite. Jeroboam reigns for a little while, his son reigns, and eventually they're wiped out by, I believe, Baasha. And then Baasha is killed by Zimri. And then Zimri commits suicide and burns down the palace and then Omri takes charge, and Omri has a son named Ahab. That's how we get to the present day. So there's warfare and chaos in the north. In the south, there's a bit more peace as David's sons rule. Ahab ends up being a bad king who rules for a long time, and he marries Jezebel. Jezebel is a princess from Sidon in the north, not an Israelite kingdom. So this is Ahab's first mistake. Then she brings her idolatrous worship of Baal and Asherah, which is epically recorded for us in Kings with Elijah versus Jezebel. And so that's the house of Ahab. Athaliah, who has been hinted at in chapter 18 and in chapter 21, finally is named here in chapter 22. So this daughter of Ahab is mentioned or hinted at, but now we get her name. So she's bringing the house of Ahab into the southern kingdom. and So it's interesting that of all these things going on, Jezebel herself is actually never mentioned, if you read closely. She's hinted at, she's in the background. If you read kings, well, she takes up, you know, either existing or being present and active, she takes up almost one-third of first and second kings. She's right there in the middle, and she seems to never go away. She's a significant character, but she's never mentioned in Chronicles. Uh, Well, so this uh, pushes her off to the side in terms of not being a major character, but she's there for the background and kind of comes to the foray with uh, the living embodiment in, in her daughter. No one hunts God's people like Jezebel does. No one serves idols like Jezebel does. No one seems to have a better case for breaking each of the Ten Commandments like Jezebel but her name is not mentioned. So, at this point, we have these two kingdoms, Israel and Judah, and they were brothers, in a sense, you could say, as as one people, and they've been divided. But what we see is clearly that the, the southern kingdom has been with good kings like Asa and Jehoshaphat has been seeking the Lord, and the northern kingdom has been full of idolatry, walking in the ways of Jeroboam, walking in the ways of Ahab and Jezebel. They've But what's now being established for us as the daughter of Jezebel is the queen of the southern kingdom as her son reigns. And if we pay attention to some details that you might have caught on, Jehoram, we talked about last week, is the father of Ahaziah. It's the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom, Ahab has two sons, Jehoram and Ahaziah. So it's confusing they have the same names, but they're cousins. This might happen if Think of my big, fat Greek wedding, where he's introducing the family to Ian. And he's like, Nick, Nick, Nikki, Nico, and they all have the same name. Um, cousins do that sometimes. So they have the same names, but what the chronicler is trying to show us is that at this point in history, Judah has never been more like Israel. They're supposed to be different. They're supposed to be God's covenant people. They're supposed to be the sons of David reigning. And what it is is a daughter of Jezebel with sons who, with a husband and sons who have the same name as Ahab's family. And what she brings is idolatry and wickedness. What it is is the house of Ahab is functionally in control of what the house of David should be in. And so it's also worthy of note uh, within all these details that the chronicler, uh, what we see in chronicles and we see it in kings, there's a habit some of you may know, of listing the mothers of the kings of Judah, usually at the end when, you know, it's summarizing his reign. He reigned for this many years, and his son reigned in his place, and his mother's name was so-and-so. That's something that the northern kingdom never has mentioned. Uh, There's just a couple of exceptions, but uh, in the the southern kingdom, all the mothers are mentioned, even Athaliah. And people have questions, why? why are the mothers being mentioned? Are they influential, or is, um, is there something else going on here? I like to think, uh, it's not my idea, I have just read it somewhere and it sounded good to me, I like to think it's a little bit of a, a hint towards Genesis 3, where the seed of the woman will crush the head of the seed of the serpent. There's this conflict between the serpent and the woman, between Eve's descendants and those who follow the devil. And so, that makes sense. Uh, but now we have one of these mothers who's supposed to represent, you know, the family of David. She's married into it, and she's the complete opposite of that. She's as serpent-like as they come. And so, what we've had is this seed of the woman versus the seed of the serpent, and now it's been turned on its head where it's, it's a mother who is doing the devil's work. And so, the house of Ahab has gained control. We see this wickedness continue. And so, and when, uh, when Ahaziah dies, Athaliah sees an opportunity to take control, which is completely unexpected. Uh, we might see a regency of some kind established, but no, she takes control for herself, and she does something that's quite unexpected. I expect grandmas to spoil, right? If you're a grandmother, you spoil. It's what you do. Uh, my grandmas spoiled me and my siblings, Candy, snacks, gifts, all the things. I knew where to find grandma after church and go get some peppermints. And now, as a father, I watch my sons be spoiled by their grandmas. And, you know, they go out to get some groceries, staying for the weekend, and they come home and he's got a new car. And we'll add it to the overflowing toy box. The grandmas spoil. That's what they do. It's what I think the Lord has called them to do. Uh, Athaliah is the worst grandmother ever. She kills her own grandsons to secure the throne for herself. This is unexpected, and yet it is what we also might expect from the heart of man, the heart of woman. And so she destroys the house of Judah, and she establishes herself. But she does this because an opportunity has been opened to her. She was ruling through her son, Ahaziah, as we see in verse 7. But it was ordained by God. It was ordained by God that Ahaziah would face judgment, just like the northern kingdom. So first, the house of Ahab is facing judgment, as it's been pointed out to us. Uh, facing judgment that Elijah spoke of. Some of that background is in Kings, one of my favorite chapters, Second, Second Kings 9. It's when It goes through great detail and dialogue of Jehu bringing this judgment against the house of Ahab. And Ahaziah, from our text, shows up in that chapter. And what it is, is he's going to go follow in the council, as chapter 22 is pointed out, following the counsel of the house of Ahab. They give him bad advice. He goes off and joins himself in war, just like his grandfather with the house of Ahab. They go to battle. They're defeated. Ahab's son is wounded and goes to heal. Ahaziah decides to pay him a sick visit, and it just so happens you have the king of Israel and the king of Judah in one place, and Jehu's coming very quickly in a chariot. And Jehu, as it's recorded in 2 Kings, brings the judgment, shoots his bow and arrow, kills kills Joram, and they chase down Ahaziah, who tries to get away. But as it's interesting here in chapter 22, what are we told about Ahaziah? Where do they find him? they find him in Samaria. That's not in the southern kingdom. So, when he runs away and seeks to hide, he doesn't take refuge in his own kingdom, in his own city with Jerusalem, in the city of Zion. He takes refuge in the northern kingdom with his family there, with the family of the house of Ahab. And he's found and he's taken to Jehu and he's put to death because, yes, he's a son of David, but at the same time, he's also a, son of, a grandson of Ahab. And so, this is an extension of the judgment on the house of Ahab that has come. And so, as Ahaziah has wiped out, it's, a, it's showing that Elijah's prophecy, that all the males of Ahab's house will be wiped out. And so, Ahaziah has been king for only one year, but in that one year, he's continued in his father's wickedness, and he has listened to his mother, and he's listened to wicked counselors, and it has been to his own undoing to face this judgment. But what do we learn from this? What do we learn from Ahaziah being caught up in this? What do we learn from the destruction of Joram and even the destruction of Ahab's house? We learn something quite simple God's judgment is real. These are not foreign people, not the Egyptians over here, or the Babylonians over there, or the Canaanites. These are God's own covenant people who have rejected him. So you don't want to say, God's not really like that, is He? I could never worship a God who is so judging. Well, this is judgment right here. We don't want to shy away from this. There are times when God looks out and He sees and He says in Genesis 6, every intention of the heart of man is inclined toward evil continually. Every intention of the heart of man is inclined toward evil continually. Paul said in Acts 17 on Mars Hill as he's preaching, times of ignorance have passed. Now is the time for gospel proclamation, and that includes a warning towards judgment. And Jesus, when he came preaching, he preached, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. It is near. And Ahab's sons could not have had the kingdom more in their own hand. They were the kingdom, and they squandered it like prodigal sons who had no intention of coming home. God judged them. But why is it good news that God judges? Because He keeps His Word. The Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. That's what we see here in our text this morning. The way of the wicked is perishing. That is comforting judgment. If you face the wicked, you can know that the Lord will cause their way to perish. It might take time, but He keeps His Word. But You might ask the question, what if you find yourself among the wicked? What if I find myself among the wicked in sin? Good news God is the judge. If you have a a God who is powerful enough to judge you, then you have a God who is also powerful enough to acquit you. We need a God who can judge because we need a God who can acquit. We don't want to weaken him by saying he doesn't do these things and then take away the very power he has to save us. He has the power to acquit those who have faith. Jesus Christ. He judged the house of Ahab. The house of Ahab is no more, but as as chapter 22 ends, halfway through our reading, Athaliah is sitting on the throne. The throne isn't quite empty, but we say, who is behind it? There's a grim and worm tongue behind this throne. So, how does this situation get turned right side up? This brings us to our second point, the house of the Lord. The word house is used, I think, it counted 25 times in these two chapters. There's a lot of different houses. There's the house of Ahab, there's the house of Ahaziah, there's the house of Judah, there's even the house of Baal. But the house of the Lord is mentioned more than all of these other houses combined. It's the leading word of this passage. The house of the Lord, over and over again, or God's house. So what we learn is that salvation comes from God's house. As we saw in the end of chapter 22, uh, Jehoshabeath, the daughter of Jehoram, and the sister of Ahaziah, which I'm inclined to think makes her also the daughter of Athaliah, but it doesn't quite say that, but it probably is. If you're the sister of this guy and the daughter of this guy, you're probably also the daughter of this mother. She saves her nephew, Joash, and she hides him, right? Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. She hides him in the house of the Lord. And Jehoshaphat is the daughter of a king and the wife of the priest, Jehoiada. She intervenes in a situation of wicked slaughter to save one child. Where do you hide a prince who is supposed to be dead? Well, how about plain sight? If you look up at the ceiling, notice all of this beautiful architecture, the wood here. Uh, I remember the first time I walked into the sanctuary last year, and I looked around and I looked up and I thought, I've been here before. I haven't been here before, but it looked a lot like my home sanctuary back in Michigan. That was built pretty close to the same time this one was built. From the walls up, it, it's, it's very similar, uh, so it, it made it feel like home immediately. when we noticed with this architecture, uh, maybe it's been pointed out to you before, but uh, this is to remind us of the ark. It's made out of wood. We're in a box. In the ark, God saved His people from His judgment in the flood. And there's another ark mentioned in the Bible. It's a little ark, but it's still called an ark, and it's an exodus. And there was a prince stuck in it and hidden away from a king who would destroy him, and he's saved by a princess, the daughter of Pharaoh. And so you can think of the house of God as like an ark. And that's where they hide him, and that's where he's saved. And so Athaliah reigns for six years and sits on the throne without any idea that in the very city of Jerusalem, her own grandson lives to replace her. And then, uh, chapter 23, in the seventh year, so six long years have passed, but in the seventh year, the priest Jehoiada organizes a coup to take back the kingdom and His plan is outlined for us in detail. On a certain Sabbath day when the Levites have been gathered up to one to go off shift, the other to come on shift uh, in in large numbers, the Levites live out among the land, but what they do is for a portion of the year they serve in the city of Jerusalem. They have their time there, perhaps four months. It's in thirds, four months, one-third, one-third, twelve months. So Jehoiada picks a certain Sabbath day. He gathers them in, but he does not send the other ones out. So he has twice as many Levites as he normally would before. And he has them make a covenant with the commanders of the army. So he's very organized. He's got his details. He's got his plan. He's got the army. He's got the Levites. And they make a covenant. And he gathers the people. It's the Sabbath day after all. They gather, they assemble, and they worship. And then he has a surprise for them. Yes, it's a great day of worship, there's some extra Levites around, but this is somewhat typical. It happens about two or three times a year that there'd be this changing of the guard and it should happen every Sabbath that we have a worship service, but now he has a surprise. He brings a boy out of the house of the Lord, just a six-year-old boy, and he has that boy stand by his pillar and has the people behold him, and so you can imagine with me. Imagine the people. For six years, Athaliah has been reigning. They haven't had a queen put her control on the people, they haven't had a queen quite on the throne. Mothers have had influence over kings, but now there's no king. The throne is functionally empty, or at least it's being filled by somebody who's not supposed to be on the throne. She's the daughter of the most wicked king in the Bible. She's slaughtered, seemingly slaughtered the entire house of David with the help of Jehu and even with the help of Jehoram as he killed his own brothers, we saw last week in the passage. So there's got to be an utter sense of hopelessness among the people. For six years they've waited. There's no king. Every male that we would want to put on the throne has been killed right down to the children. And there's not a lot of hope. So the questions for the people are, are God's promises null and void? And that's what this little boy represents. Surprise, surprise, here he is hidden away in the temple of God. Now you can have hope again. Hope again in God's Word and His promises. The Lord spoke concerning the sons of David. That's what Jehoiada says. The Lord spoke. Now let him reign, for he is the son of David. And so Jehoiada arms the Levites with the weapons of King David the weapons that are stored in the temple. And he has the temple grounds secured all around on this Sabbath day and this Sabbath year. It's a seventh year. Notice that in verse 1 of chapter 23. In the seventh year, it's, it's like a Sabbath year and on a Sabbath day in a worship service. And he has them secure the gate of the foundation and secure the king's house and secure the gates of the temple courts. And I'm reminded of uh, the movie Operation Valkyrie with uh, Tom Cruise and it's about the assassination attempt on Adolf Hitler in 1944. They place a bomb at a meeting under a table and try to kill Hitler and at the same time it's really the story, more people are familiar with the bomb under the table, but there's also the story back in Berlin, there's this coalition of people sneakily trying to overthrow the Nazi government and broker peace with the West. And what you find is that there's an army fighting battles, it's the German army, the more normal thing you think of with an army. And the Germans also have the notorious SS to do the dirty work and to keep control. If the army were to turn they've got the SS, so how do you deal with these elements? But there's also a third element, the Home Guard or the National Guard. They're to keep peace, be used in a time of crisis or emergency. But they figured if they can just switch some phone lines, make a few phone calls, tell them that the, the Führer is dead, they can overtake the capital, secure everything, and before anybody really finds out what happened, there's enough chaos and miscommunication that they could take control. The movie presents it in a way that seems like, oh, this almost happened. I'm not completely sure how really close it got, but Hitler survived the assassination attempt. Some people chickened out, didn't make the calls they needed to make, and it went kaplooey. What we find is, if you want to take control, you've got to have the right people on your side. And Jehoiada has the right people on his side. He's got the army, and he's got the Levites. And we see time and time again in the Old Testament, in Numbers, and here in Chronicles and other situations, when all else seems to fail, when they seem to go following in wickedness, there tends to be revival when the Levites get swords in their hands and start to uh, make things look pretty serious. And so that's what happens is he has the Levites secure everything, And before Athaliah can quite figure out what's going on, she falls into this trap. And so, we make plans, we entrust them to the Lord, but we also don't want to wait too long. We want to do something. It's also interesting, some of the other language that's emphasized in this text Let's talk about holiness. Jehoiada's commands are very clear that they are to distinguish between the holy and the unholy. Nobody who is unholy is going to come into the temple. And that's part of what the Levites do. They stand guard to keep unholy things and unholy people out. You want to bring a pig in? Not so fast. Or perhaps a foreigner. And so holiness matters. And it's out of this holy place with these people that something extraordinary is going to happen. As uh, Isaiah even has a vision similar to this. right? In Isaiah 6, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and the train of his robe filled the temple. And he sees angels with wings covering themselves and crying, holy, holy, holy. And Elijah, or Isaiah realizes his unholiness. Woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips and live among a people of unclean lips. And so when the Lord renders judgment, and he's on his throne, he is holy and his judgment is also holy. And we'll see it here as the priest gives commands, the Levites are distinguishing between the holy and the unholy. Joash has been raised here. He's been instructed in the word of the Lord and, and raised by Jehoiada. And Athaliah hears the noise. It's the noise that draws her to something. Perhaps she hasn't quite heard what Sabbath worship sounds like. Perhaps she hasn't quite heard what happy people sound like as she's been reigning. And so she hears the noise of the worship service and she goes to check it out. Which is not a wise move. She, un- she doesn't understand that she's not even supposed to be there. And so she walks in. What does she see? The people running and praising the Lord, and a boy standing by a pillar at the entrance. And she knows exactly who he is. You would think her heart would go out to her grandson. But instead, she sees all of this, and she only has one word treason treason. That's what she has to say about it. This is the cry of unbelief. She is all alone in declaring her unbelief in the face of overwhelming evidence to the truth. This is the true son of David with a crown on his head, anointed by God's priests in a holy place, being proclaimed king by God's people. And she has the audacity to cry, treason. Unbelief runs deep. Every person is their own judge in their own heart. And he decides what evidence they will accept or reject. And even Paul, in his preaching in Ephesus with his friends, was accused of having turned the world upside down. All he was was proclaiming the gospel, proclaiming the truth. Jehoiada has no respect for her office of usurper, and he orders her to be removed from this holy assembly and to be put to death because her words are quite true. Her last words are treason. And they were meant against Jehoiada and his coup, but what they were were her own confession of guilt. It's her own treason that is being judged this day. And it's interesting, you get details, and you wonder, why are these details here? She's taken out to the horse gate of the king's house, and she's put to death there. There's these different gates mentioned. There's the the gate of the foundation. There's the upper gate to the king's house. And there's also this horse gate. Why the horse gate? Well, I'm inclined to think that's probably the stables. Why does that matter? Well, if you study a little bit, you might realize there's a few details that this is connecting to. Ahab, her father, died in battle in his chariot, pulled by a horse. Dogs licked the blood that came out of that chariot. Jezebel, her mother, was thrown out the window of the palace. Her blood spattered on horses, which trampled her and she was eaten by dogs. Athaliah is taken to the horse gate. Her end is just like the end of her mother. It involves horses to some degree. And so Jehoiada has led the people to overthrow this wicked queen, restore God's uh, chosen one to the throne. And so he leads the people to respond to God's word, and they don't just restore the king and destroy the queen, and they live happily ever after, but there's further response in this repentance, and that is to go and to destroy another house, the house of Baal, and kill the priest. Athaliah had established idolatry within God's holy city, and this action is their faith and obedience to God's word. What we see is that out of the house of the Lord we have judgment on the house of Ahab, restoration of the house of David, obliteration of the house of Baal, and purification of the house of the king. Joash who's been raised in the house of the Lord, is taken into the house of the king and put on his throne. And so on this Sabbath day, in this seventh year, there is rejoicing by the people, which is worship. And there is quiet in the city. That's how the text ends. There is quiet in the city, which is rest. So we have worship. We have rest. What are you called to every Lord's Day? Worship and rest. What are you called to every Lord's Day? Because great David's greater son... He's on the throne. He is subduing us to Himself. He is conquering all His and our enemies, and He is ruling and defending us. Jesus Christ is our great high priest and our King. He's our great high priest who is interceding for us with prayer. And He is distinguishing between the holy and the unholy. He is also our prophet, and He speaks words of life. God's promises have not failed. His Son reigns, and the Psalm 2 says, Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Amen. Let's pray. Lord in heaven, we come before You this morning worshiping You, for You are the only God. We thank You for this Word, and we praise You for it as You continue to keep Your promises. Help us, O oh Lord, to walk by faith and not in unbelief. Forgive us our sins. And help us to know that Thine is the kingdom. Amen.